Welcome to This Civic Moment, where we talk to local and regional civic and community leaders about their civic calling and discuss possibilities for our civic future. Today, we have Evan Krause, director of Eastside Allied in East St. Louis. So, uh, you know, Evan, there's so many things that have been going on, you know, this past year. We've obviously been dealing with a lot. And sometimes it helps us to go back and think, what helps, what calls us or what kind of pushes us to get involved in this civic space, right? This place that's been so vitriolic, that's had so much chaos, so much contention. And so when you're thinking about why, what inspired you to kind of begin your civic journey, your journey of civic, civic engagement? It's a good question. Um, and I wish I had that like ready-made answer. Um, you know, as I reflect on it, you know, I think we're all products of our environment. You know, we, we internalize things, we get conditioned directly and indirectly. Um, and, and so I definitely attribute a lot of my orientation to civic life and to, to serving others to my dad. Uh, he was a public servant in his own right, professionally as an attorney, but, you know, he, he just grounded me in the understanding of there are the haves and the have nots. That's something he always said. And he was one that did all he could for the have nots. And he did it, uh, as an attorney prior to that, he was very engaged politically with voting rights and voter registration drives. And so, you know, being exposed to his leadership, um, either hearing the stories or just seeing how he lived his life, you know, reflecting back now as an adult, I got to imagine that left an imprint on me. I also have early memories of seeing, I'll never forget this. I, w I was in elementary school and I saw a, a movie called uh, Little King, which was a story about Dr. King as a child into teenage years. Um, and sort of like, you know, what informed him. And it, it ended with his first speech. And um, I remember bringing that to my school to show to everyone else. And from there, you know, I would say I followed the teachings of Dr. King and really have eaten up his word in so many ways and, and internalized it in my upbringing where so much of that where I would say between my dad and Dr. King uh, were probably my most formative stages as a, as, as a young, young child and young adult that's really, you know, driven me to only know of one route and that is to serve uh, and to do all we can to, to bend the arc uh, a bit more towards justice. That's awesome. And um, also just to back up a little too on that, so you talked about your dad, you talked about sort of the upbringing. Um, where are you from originally? Yes, yeah, so I'm originally from New Jersey, a town called, it's West Orange, New Jersey. And again, you know, the things you learn when you're an adult and you reflect on as a child, you don't, you only know what you know when you're a child. But I am incredibly blessed to have grown up where I grew up. It, it was an area that is more diverse than most places. Um, and I, I had an experience where, I mean, truthfully, I was the minority in, 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 in some of the neighborhoods that I grew up in. And it gave me a, a perspective on how other people's lives are that informed my early understanding of inequities. You know, we didn't use the language of inequities. I just saw how people were treated differently, right? 
we literally have a hill in my community. And if you lived up the hill, you were upper income. If you lived below the hill, uh, you were lower income. And uh, our upper hill was bordered by uh, affluent community that was predominantly white and uh, Asian or East Asian. And then the, the um, lower end of the, the hill was bordered by communities that were lower income, uh, Black and Latinx. Um, and we, our, our town was sort of the melting pot of both ends of the spectrum, as well as having immigrants and refugees. And so when I went back to visit my high school about 10 years later, more informed, I'll never forget uh, a teacher, Chris Evans. He was like, yeah, you went to a United Nations school. Like you got, <laughs> you got exposed uh, in ways that others didn't. Um, and so when I came to St. Louis, originally for undergrad at St. Louis University, um, it was a culture shock to me because, you know, St. Louis University is a Catholic institution, predominantly white, very different environment than I had ever experienced before. And that helped me understand just what different experience I had, particularly as a white person with, with my upbringing and relationships and what informed who I am uh, in many ways. So maybe a little bit more context than you were looking for, but I think that too informs my civic mindedness and, and, you know, what drives me. Yeah, no, that, that's perfect. It's because it, it, not only did, did you come to St. Louis, you, 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 you've been here a while and, and you've really taken on um, a role as a leader here too. I'm curious coming into, into the St. Louis context, especially at SLU, um, what, I mean, how, how did, what was your response initially to that shock and what made you want to get sort of engaged even deeper in that community? Yeah. I mean, it was a shock on campus, but then a shock, uh, in St. Louis overall. I mean, you mentioned at the top of the, the show, right? The divisiveness, the vitriol, it's, it's clear as day in St. Louis. And, I can't say I knew that that was the case before I, I I decided to come here, but once I was here, I really just felt, what can I do to help bridge the divide? Um, mm. There were ways that we did that on campus and across campus. Um, I had the opportunity to serve as president of the student government at St. Louis University, and we actually had an office, right? And the window pointed towards mm -hmm. Harris Stowe State University. And... And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have what's dividing these two institutions, but one street. And so, you know, symbolically, but also right. practically, I called up the president of Harris Stowe State University, uh, an East St. Louis native, actually, uh, Leonard Johnson, mm -hmm. and talked about how, you know, it says time to cross the street and how can we try to merge some mm -hmm. efforts across our organizations. Um, and so that was like our own way of you know, and, and, you know, St. Louis and Harris Stowe is like dead center of the city, right? We we were hoping that, you know, we right. could generate some movement towards people coming together through our own actions. Um, and, you know, mm. that's, that's always been the desire. Uh, it's always been the drive. And mm -hmm. uh, as much as, you know, so much is coming to light in the past year, past two years with, you know, the, the murder of, of George Floyd, and countless others, mm -hmm. it has also generated so much action and, and progress that it's given, you know, it's, it's giving mm -hmm. hope. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's giving a lot of grief, um, but it's giving hope. And, I, and I'm one that believes and knows that grief and hope can coexist. 
that that's an amazing story, especially coming, like you said, coming from the context you were coming from and then coming into St. Louis. And then it sounds like you're definitely down to break down some barriers and, and reach across, like you said, reach across the street, across the street. Um, when you were doing that work I mean, and, and really trying to build those relationships, what was the reaction? I'm curious how communities received that action or at least that proposition of trying to break through some of those barriers. You know, success, I mean, progress takes time. Um, so I think at that point, you know, when you're college age and you, your ambitions are high, so you can also get let, let down easily if it doesn't meet exactly what you want. So at the time, we probably didn't think we were making as much progress because, you know, what did people want to do? They wanted to party, right? And like the other college students, they were either wanted to party, they were wanted to, you know, think about what was next in their careers, getting into this heaviness about race relations and, and economic justice wasn't for everybody. And, you know, I, I say that from a standpoint of, I would say back then, my answer would have been, we didn't even scratch the surface on what needed to be done. My answer now, mm -hmm. looking back with a different lens, is you never can underestimate the ripple effect of your actions. Um, I think mm -hmm. our efforts definitely was a catalytic moment for other people to get involved uh, become their leaders in their own right, or create at least some wrinkle of change that's been lasting. Um, you know, again, mm -hmm. seeing what's what's happening now versus when I was at SLU, you know, we, we, we had a diversity task force that we formed as students, uh, a university-wide task force where we put prompted calls to action that didn't come to fruition until there was, I don't know if folks are familiar with the clock tower accords at St. Louis University uh, post, uh, rather during the time of Ferguson, right? There was the campus um, sit-in and stuff, you know? So you, you, you got to measure change that, you know, we want to talk about over time. Uh, and so, you know, while it may not be visible to you right now, be a little patient, maybe have that burning patience and you'll, you'll see the, the ripple effect of your actions. Yeah. I really, uh, I really like how you set us up with that, you know, talking about, you know, this figure who in a younger age, you know, King, obviously a monumental figure, and then, you know, kind of coming into this, you know, transition into St. Louis university. And then I like how you opened up with that kind of that small action, but I like how you also talked about how those small actions are important because I think sometimes we think, okay, you know, we're, we're kind of always working our way up to the big actions, but in those small actions, I think, you know, something is done, something happens uh, and it does impact some lives. And I think that that can be important for some folks. Cause I know some people may say, no, the big stuff is really hard for me. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to begin, but just taking that first step. Okay. What, look at the role that I'm in okay, what can I do right now from where I'm at? I think that's really important for civic right. engagement. And so, you know, you talked a little bit about that and, and you talked a little bit about your, your, your far past. So I guess coming to the current moment, what ways are you civically engaged today? What kind of things are you doing in the community? Yeah. So uh, I don't look at my current role as a job and I can't think of another job I'd want. Right. So I have, the, I have the pleasure of serving as director of Eastside Aligned, which is a movement to create the conditions for young people to thrive. Um, and I used the, the words create the conditions intentionally 
because we know that the 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 things that are keeping young people back are not uh programs or services it's really societal conditions that are are, are, are oppressive um, in many different ways and so our work is about how do we bring people together uh, including young people themselves to you know you hear a lot of term analogy now right like reimagine um, but we're not just trying to reimagine we're trying to really facilitate change in policy practice uh, investment or rather you know resource streams. Um, across the cradle to career continuum. Um, and so I have a really unique role where I get to connect with people uh, in all parts of community, you know, from residents in all parts of, you know, what, what that looks like to all different sectors of where people work, all trying, you know, all with that same goals of how do we build a community that, that young people can feel supported, uh, experience well-being, or in other words, enjoy being a kid, um, and have the different components that lead to uh, a, a thriving life. Mm. And that work in East St. Louis, what's so interesting about that work, you know, United Way is a massive, you know, behemoth, right, as it comes to the nonprofit world and the nonprofit sector in this region. And I think East St. Louis is unique in the fact that you know, often when people talk about East St. Louis, it's an afterthought. You know, there's there's a lot of needs in St. Louis. There's a lot of needs in the region. And your your role has put you in deep contact with East St. Louis particularly. And so can you kind of talk about how the work that you're doing in East St. Louis fits into this broader metropolitan kind of region? Like why is it important to, to kind of address the needs in a place like East St. Louis? And how does it kind of go underserved when we look at the broader region? Yeah, no, it's a it's an excellent question and, and a challenging one because there are ways in which East St. Louis feels a part of the the, the broader region and in ways as you kind of alluded to also feels left out of the equation or overlooked, uh, and 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 certainly dismissed uh, in in many ways. Yeah, as it relates to United Way, the 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 stakeholders who initiated. Eastside Align as a movement is are, are very grateful that United Way provided the backbone infrastructure to help get the initiative off the ground. Um, and just as a, a footnote, we're at an exciting stage where Eastside Align is is transitioning to form as a standalone nonprofit to uh, sustain and grow the impact of the movement long term to root itself even deeper in community. Um, so just given uh, that as, a, as an update for folks to be looking at, uh, East Side Align is going to be looking and inviting many to get engaged with our mission to champion uh, equity, justice, and well-being with and for young people in East St. Louis. And so we're, we'll, we'll welcome anyone's support. Um, as it relates to regionally, I think, you know, I, I think there's a lot that could be learned from our work over the last several years. Um in the St. Louis region, a lot of folks are, are making various efforts towards collaboration uh, and towards systems change. We have been doing it steadily and, and you know, because of our geographic footprint being a bit smaller, have had some unique opportunities. Also, because we're in Illinois and not in Missouri, have had more favorable uh, statewide policies that, that support our, our work. Um, so from a regional standpoint in the type of work we do, uh, I would hope people would, would look to us to, for learning. Um, we certainly look across the river all the time for, to, to learn what works. Um, 
But, you know, as a region, I, I think the civic community needs to invest. Uh, and when I say invest, I'm talking invest time, invest uh, listening ears to what's going on in East St. Louis and to really invest times in thinking about the structural conditions that will continue to prevent young people and their families from having a, a, a thriving life. Uh, it is not it, it is not any person's uh, choice uh, in, uh, that that lead to the, the factors. You have a regulatory environment, uh, a, a, a financing streams that just don't work for people. And there's some mammoth shifts that need to take place. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really curious about sort of a few points that you made there, especially in terms of what does it mean to invest in an initiative like this? And of course, there's the, the what's become sort of a buzzwordy with a collective impact and what that really means and looks different everywhere. Um, and I've seen it where some collective impact is really just people in a room talking all the time um, and having meetings, <laughs> and but, but they're not really impacting much because it's, because it's, you'll invite people to, oh, you know, they'll consult, they'll allow them to talk four or five minutes in the meeting and, and they consider that. I'm, I'm curious for, for you, what is what are these relationships really look like for Eastside Align and, and where do you think they need to go um, for collective impact to really mean what it's supposed to mean? Yeah, well, I think your critique on collective impact is well-founded. Um, you know, we certainly uh, use that framework uh, in our kind of beginning. And I'd say we still use pieces of it, but we use it as a framework. Um, you know, and, and, I, and I say that really intentionally. Uh, it's a framework that helps people think about how you can organize institutions um, but it's a framework that also needs some other components. And that's why we really uh, utilize sort of a systems change lens and systems change approach. You know, so we organize people through a collective impact framework. Great. But to do what at what end? And what I appreciate about a systems change lens is it names the conditions. Uh, there are six conditions within the systems change. Uh, you have your, your mindsets or your mental models, right? Like how people think about other people, about places, about policies. Mm -hmm. Then you have the policies, practices, and resource flows. Uh, and then the other sets of conditions are power uh, dynamics and relationships, right? And that's the heart of it, right? How mm -hmm. are you seeing how those things work in your community? And how, what are you doing to try to shift them? Um, I probably went a little off track on your initial question, but I wanted to like kind of spit out like know, that's good, yeah. for collective impact to work, it, it can't be just a, a framework on and of itself. You got to be targeted in, in what your challenges are and how you go about addressing them. I will say though, the pieces of getting into a meeting or sorry, a room and just talking there because I have found that the secret sauce, which ain't so secret is relationships make a lot of difference. Uh, how you can cultivate trust among people uh, can expedite things. Uh, and in communities like East St. Louis and, and many places, we're not just in the relationship building business, we're in the relationship repair business. Um, there's been, and that's in many different facets, right? Um, harm has been done to community. And as we look towards racial healing uh, and healing of other formats, we have to know that some people, like when they hear the terms healing, they think of like, oh, we're going to have some kumbaya moments. Um, 
they're they're in for an awakening because healing is actually political work. And and what I mean by that is in healing, you name what who and what has caused harm or is causing harm. And if you name the the systems of oppression, it's a, a first step to identifying solutions to combat them. And so I do think we need definitely more spaces where people are in the same room, but we need to be skilled in how we're facilitating them uh, that, that meets people on a human level and uh, centers our humanity in this work and really works to dismantle the hierarchy of human value, right? That, that's ultimately like at the root of what we need to do. From there, uh, you know, we can really start to address a lot of the, the various policies and practices that don't match up with human-centered approaches. Yeah, I guess um, with with proximity to philanthropy from in the role that you have, I guess w- w- knowing that foundation, other foundations have really had to think about racial equity and equitable partnerships in more meaningful ways. I'm curious, any thoughts you have on on how um, philanthropic partners can support movements like the one you're part of, and and make sure that they are building equitable partnership and not doing sort of the old sweet charity model of just doing one year grants that aren't really sustainable and not really aligning with the, with the needs and demands of community. Keep preaching. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, you're, you're naming some of the the things in which philanthropy hasn't uh, really been responsive uh, or uplifting to need, you know, uh, in, in the granting world, there, there's been a lot of trends that may have had well intention, but, but have created its own inequities. Um, and, and certainly, as, as you lifted up, life cycle problems can't be solved in grant cycles. And the question of, you know, how are you going to sustain after we give this grant? Is, is, is that a fair question in a sector that doesn't generate revenue by and large? Um, you know, overall with philanthropy, I applaud and am grateful that folks are investing the time for their own uh, understanding of racial inequity and and, and ways to be anti-racist, anti-oppressive. We need more of that. Everyone needs to to take arm on it. Um, I just also hope that, you know, people continue to be truly responsive and not just trying to fit things into, well, do you have a checklist that does it say racial equity or not? Does it say this or not? You know, in a community like East St. Louis that is 90% African-American, like, can I say the conversation has always been, you know, what's racial equity look like? If we're talking countywide, yes, but locally, that's not the conversation. The conversation is more like, how are we going to make? How are we going to have the the resources we need to survive? You know, and and not hit the same checkbox. So I just would say, like, we've been doing the work of racial equity since our inception as a movement, but we don't have it plastered all over our website just because we're trying to hit a current funder's like lens that they've just put on for the first time. It's a wrestling, right? Like, of yes, we want everyone to be learning and engaging. But sometimes people hit the overdrive a little bit and and unfortunately box what racial equity work means and looks like. Um, and it just it, it makes it position because I know for ESA, we, we are not we're going to stay true to who we are um, and we're not going to just try to brand because it's, it's the trend of what things are going to brand. If you look at uh, our origins even if we didn't have the word equity front and center in, in our, in our 
documents initially, you can't look at what we're doing and not see that these are the work that, that creates equity and community. So I guess I'm, I'm sharing some challenges of just how people are trying to look at, at a, a marker of equity through a narrow lens right now. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's really helpful and good and definitely an, an idea. I think a lot of people are starting to trying to figure out that question is how do we envision what is the next focus beyond just uh, putting up the anti-racist statement or putting up the racial equity statement, but truly what does it mean to do that healing and reconciliation, relationship building and true partnership? I like what you said. I want to pick on this thread that you laid down for us. And, you know, in our podcast, one of the things that we try to do, too, is bring out the humanity of civic engagement like and, and the humanity of people who, who feel called to get involved in our civic space. Um, we do live in a highly, highly technocratic vision, right, of what it means to get engaged, whether it be into elected office, whether it be in a nonprofit leadership. But these are human people. Like you, and I love how you use that term. Break down hierarchies of human value. Whew. And to me, yeah, I picked it out. I picked it out a long time. What I think is important about that language is that, you know, it calls to mind that our civic community and our civic spaces are built up of human beings who this, this work of civic engagement is not just civic engagement, but it's really touching lives. It's touching relationships. And I, how do you, as someone who is in a role of leadership, in a role of, you know, you know being over money, being over people, how do you keep that framework um, when there's so many other, you know, you have to write grants, you have to, you know, go to meetings with, you know, high power. How do you keep that, the people at the center of your work? Mm -hmm. So it's a great question. Um, and I do want to, I'm glad you lifted up the, the, the phrase around the hierarchy of human value. I wish I could say I coined it. I didn't. I, I, I'm borrowing it, feeling it, whichever you want to use. Um, and actually, I, I don't know the origin of it, but I, going back to our, our previous conversation on philanthropy, uh, the Kellogg Foundation has invested uh, across the nation in, in work called Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation. And that's one of the key terms that, that, that derive from that work that, uh, we, like you, we, it resonated with us. You know, so in terms of how we keep it people centered it is you know at a couple of different levels right like for me personally i'm just oriented that way like i'm i'm empathetic <laughs> I, I i i care about people i care about what people think i care about what people need so for me i'm always i'm always oriented that way as i think about the, the team members i get to work with and those that i that i get to serve alongside um it's a it's just a general disposition um but it, but as you noted, even if that's your disposition, you can get consumed with the busy work, uh, the administrative work, the grants, the, you know, are, are you meeting this deliverable? Are you being accountable with things? You certainly can get lost. Um, the only way I really know how to do it is by, you know, being account accountability with others and, and that if you're not saying it makes her someone else is pressing it, having it be repeated on top of your agendas. You know, a lot of people, sometimes people put mission statements at the top of agendas. I, I think putting statements about core principles and values are important to, to put out there. We need these reminders, right? We need these prompts in our mind. I, I always think back, uh, there was a, a member of a school board who told me that all the school board members on their name placards, you would see their name if, if you were looking at them. But as they looked at their name placard, it said, remember the children. 
you know, <laughs> you think that's kind of ironic, right? School board, remember the children, but you know, they're making decisions about salaries and whatever. Um, so I would say exactly. don't discount the little things that keep it in front of your mind. Don't uh, discount creating space for people just to come together to talk. Um, and don't discount those like self checks. Like, what did you do today? What this, how did the decisions you did, you made impact someone? Um, there's no arriving with this work, right? It's, it's, it is perpetual practicing. And so I, you know, I was a basketball player. I, I, I liking it to, you ain't going to get your handled right. Unless you're everyday dribbling, 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 dribbling. And, and, and in this work of, of being people centered or, or trying to create change, you, you have to approach it with that same level of, of practice and drive, uh, the Mamba mentality, you know, to, to honor our, our late Kobe Bryant, right? You need, you need to bring a Mamba mentality to, 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 to becoming a more human centered society. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm so glad we had you for this time. I know we're, we're coming up on our time. And so one of the things we like to ask is a really particular question. And it's this, uh, as we look forward from this civic moment, it's important to think about our civic future. And this podcast is called This Civic Moment. And so one of the questions that we like to ask people, what gives you hope for our common civic life? You know, we started off saying, right, this is a very contentious time. And you kind of talked about a little bit of the concrete work you do, but what gives you hope for the future for our common civic life? Uh, both of you. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and I don't, I mean, I'm not trying to be coy in those remarks. I mean it. Like the fact that, you know, you both are doing what you're doing, creating this space. I, I mentioned earlier that I, I have such a unique seat where I get to engage with an array of people and and get to know people on a personal level, to know their hearts. There are a lot of people doing good work. Uh, and, and at, you know, great expense of, of, of personal, uh, of the personal lives. Right. Um, so the people within the community I, I, I work within and serve within give me an, a, a tremendous amount of hope, uh, you know, thinking nationally, you know, seeing what's been true to the test of time that the young people will lead us seeing the, 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 mm-hmm. the activism that is being pioneered by young people, um, and seeing, you know, uh, again, I, I can't, you know, no one can put into words the grief that generates from the tragedies we had to see on full display, but it is prompting people to, to understand or at least look at things differently in a way I can tell you we haven't seen uh, even 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so uh, we have miles to go in this journey, um, no doubt. But, you know, I, I focusing on, 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 the, on the rays of light that are brightening things is, 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 is a choice. I will tell you that, too. I, I do want to, you know, I, I've learned that uh, hope or, or faith is a choice. You know, you can choose to not look at it. Mm. Um, I want to be on the side of hope. Uh, I want to be on the side of, of knowing that there's more light than darkness. Uh, and, and as, as a, mm. mentioned earlier, a student of Dr. King, light can drive out darkness. And, and so uh, those are some of the, 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 the people give me hope, the progress being made give me hope. And uh, in with how in this civic moment, 
Uh, I believe that there's a lot being catalyzed for positive change going forward. Awesome. Just as a father, so you've been a phenomenal storyteller um, just in this half hour. I'm curious if you have any stories to leave us with around some of those people that inspire you or something you've seen in the last month or even last year that, that really sticks out as that, 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 that some, or a memory that you return to that gives you hope or at least reinforces it. It's hmm. a great question. <laughs> It's a little, you know, the stories come through through storytelling right now because of, you know, some of the COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, a lot of my engagement has been <laughs> been mm. virtual. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but in terms of like the stories that I go back to, not to be a broken record, but, you know, getting to connect with people at all walks of life. I've gotten to see young people who find their voice. And, and and when they find and, and 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 it just goes from there. And so there's there's several young people. There's a group of young people. Uh, they are called leaving leaving our voices everywhere. Or love is the acronym, which I think is a powerful powerful message in itself. Um, uh, when I think about the young people who who are leading in love, uh, uh, <laughs> never thought about it. leading in love, uh, who are leading in love. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing their faces, seeing what their visions and their hopes are for themselves and their community gives me hope. Some of the uh, people who consider themselves parent and community act advocates and activists are ones that give me hope. Uh, Miss Gloria Hicks, she she has found herself everywhere uh, in the name of well-being for kids, uh, whether it be in mm-hmm. Springfield lobbying for legislation or advocating for legislation to get passed for safe uh, passageways for young people. Uh, or to showing up to whatever parent advocacy meeting there is. I mean, th- those are the, the 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 real trailblazers that I get to interact with, and they give me hope uh, day in and day out. So mm-hmm. those would be a couple folks I, I'd reference, lift up, give a shout out, and, and uh, express my appreciation because they're my teachers, they're my compass, uh, they're my you know check checkpoints to make sure we're doing what we're doing is in alignment with their hopes and their visions. Great. Shout out to love. Shout out, shout out to community. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Evan, um, I wish we could have you for another two, three hours. No, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, glad to come back. Be glad you. to come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, you got a, you're an, you're our inaugural guest, but you know, really glad that you, that you were able to make it. Thank you for the work that you're, that you're doing in the community. And, um, yeah, we're glad that you were able to join us for this civic moment. Uh, it's uh, a pleasure is mine. I appreciate being a part of this moment in time with you. And I look forward to seeing kind of where, where your, each of your journeys are going to take and what change you're going to create. Thanks for being with us as we dive into this civic moment. You can find the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement on Facebook and Instagram. And you can subscribe to this civic moment everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to drop a five-star review and give us your feedback in the comments.